For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. The Middle East and North Africa region continues to be one of the epicenters of climate crisis. Like other global hotspots, rising sea levels, high temperatures, deforestation, overfishing, drought, and water scarcity has been devastating ecosystems and the livelihood of tens of millions of people living in urban and rural areas. The new Jadalia Environment page, which will launch on Wednesday, April 22nd, aims to provide a platform for activists and researchers to examine the pressing environmental issues facing the region as well as their socioeconomic and political ramifications for the people in the region. I spoke with four of Jadalia's co-editors about the page and its mission. Dania Al-Saleh, Brittany Cook, Huma Gupta, and Owen Lawson. Dania Al-Saleh is a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's a feminist economic geographer who works on the everyday politics of U.S. universities in the Middle East and North Africa. Brittany Cook is an assistant professor of geography at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Her research interests include organic agriculture, critical development studies, political ecology, feminist geopolitics, and the international political economy of rural development projects. Huma Gupta is a scholar of environmental planning and the political economy of development. She's currently a humanities research fellow at New York University, Abu Dhabi, and her book project, The Architecture of Dispossession, Migrant Sarifa Settlements and State Building in Iraq, examines state building through the architectural production of rural migrants in cities. And Owen Lawson, he is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Columbia University and senior editor of Arab Studies Journal. His dissertation in progress examines the history of the hydroelectric development of the Litani River as a means to explore sanctions among technology, environment, finance, and society in 20th century Lebanon. He spoke first. To provide a forum for new perspectives for critical analysis on the environment in the Middle East and North Africa. It's coming, I think, at a really interesting moment. Graham Pitts, who's the point person for our page, who's not um, on this call, uh, he put it best, I think, in saying that the recent inattention um, that scholars have had towards environmental and agrarian questions in the Middle East and North Africa is actually pretty exceptional. Going back to the 20th century, 19th century and earlier, a lot of the scholarship produced in the Middle East and North Africa and also about it was primarily concerned with issues, the agrarian world, urban-rural relations, and the kinds of political-economic relationships that emerge from that. So it's been this kind of lacuna for a generation or two of scholarship. But right now, I think particularly with the new pressures that the climate crisis is bringing to bear on everybody, it's pushing a lot more people to, to re-engage with these questions, which is really exciting because it's an opportunity that invites a lot of people who had not previously really been thinking about their own work in terms of environment, or maybe are just beginning to think about these questions, to bring different perspectives and really start a new kind of conversation, which I think is essential in the context of the, the climate crisis. It's really essential to have a very different kind of conversation, particularly by decolonizing 
the ideas about the environment that we've had that have been operating, I should say, in climate discourse and environment discourse for the last uh, 20 years or so. Brittany, what would you add? Well, I think um, another issue or another feature of our mission, you know, we are launching on Earth Day, and that's kind of tongue-in-cheek in a way, you know, like, great Earth Day celebration of the environment and whatnot, but also Earth Day has a history of being kind of like a kumbaya, let's celebrate the Earth in this abstract sense, devoid of people and inequality. Um, and so I think that's really a central part of our mission as a page, is to discuss issues such as environmental justice, mm-hmm. inequality, uneven development, and how that intersects with environmental issues that the region is facing today. Danielle? I spent yesterday kind of going through our previous work on Jadalia that might have relevance to the page. And it was kind of stunning how much content there already was on the page that relates to this new page. So I think the importance of this is basically giving a space for people who already might be doing this work to come together from different disciplinary backgrounds, people that are based in the region working on these issues to share a space and, I think, work through some of the questions that Owen was just talking about Mm -hmm. and Brittany. And Homa, what about you? For me personally, I think of the Jadalia Environment page as a space where individuals who've either already been working on something related to the environment or working on different types of projects. For instance, I am an architectural and environmental historian, but it forces us to deeply reflect on the themes of the environment that we otherwise in our disciplinary orientations weren't being encouraged to think about and to publish about. And I think that's what the unique appeal of this space is, is that it incentivizes and it encourages a certain kind of detailed analysis that looks at issues of social justice, as Brittany was mentioning. It also forces a disciplinary reorientation, as Owain was mentioning. One of the questions that the environment page is raising that environmental questions in the Middle East and North Africa are usually framed in terms of security and, and energy in general. How would this page and how would you all and also people who would contribute to this page deconstruct this dominant narrative? I'm a geographer and I work on U.S. higher education branch campuses in the Gulf. Right now I'm, I'm based in Doha and I'm, I'm conducting ethnographic research on Texas A&M University, which is a Texas land-grant university that is based here in Qatar. And uh, they've been running an engineering branch campus here since 2003. And my research is all about the relationship between this university and the global oil and gas industry, both through education, the education of engineers to work for the oil and gas industry, and through research about oil and gas, and then also about alternative energy. So one thing I'd, I'd really like to see with this page is creating a space to think about oil and gas and energy outside of the frame of just like the nation, so like the rentier state kind of model that has really dominated the way scholars have looked at at the region and oil and gas, but then also transnational kind of networks and the role specifically of like U.S. universities in shaping the way development, specifically like sustainable development is shaping up in the Gulf, but in, in the broader region. So building off of what Dania is saying, I think that what, again, is unique about the page is that 
it's a space where we can examine kind of historical perspectives on the development of the oil and gas industry, its relationship with educational institutions, past and present. But also it's a space where we can think about the future in the ways in which that oil companies, for instance, like Aramco, are trying to rebrand themselves as being partners in climate change adaptation. And here I'll just take a moment to plug a status podcast interview that's going to be part of our launch on the 22nd, which deals with the use of Islamic financing, specifically the use of green sukuk in funding climate change adaptation measures, specifically like green infrastructure, so solar power plants, et cetera, that have now become a multi-billion dollar, I'm talking in the hundreds of billions of dollars industry in the Middle East and across the Islamic world. So I think that the the power of this page, like Danya and Huma have already said, is bringing in these other perspectives on how to approach even common topics such as oil. And I think one issue in environmental studies, kind of from a, especially in like thinking about political geography and some, just the way the Middle East has been approached, it's very state-based, like Danya mentioned. And so bringing in, as co-editors, we focus on bringing in a lot of people with different expertise, focusing on things like livelihoods as well, not just like water or agriculture, but thinking about daily practices so that the the research is relevant to people in the region and not just from like a geopolitical analytical perspective or something like that. This has been a fantastic discussion around oil and I actually work on other forms of energy. I work on the history of hydroelectric power in Lebanon. I'm completing a dissertation that looks at the history of the Litani River Dam project which was Lebanon's kind of mini mega project of the 1950s and I think in the context of that research something that's come up increasingly as it seems like in many countries we're kind of poised on the cusp of a big infrastructural change in the next few decades to respond to the climate crisis. Uh, This period of the 1950s really has a lot of important lessons in terms of all of the many failures that happened with these mega projects, these huge infrastructural expansions that took place in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, which were both the kinds of neo-imperial, kind of American-driven or Soviet-driven large projects, or these kinds of nationalistic projects around self-determination, which often expressed a kind of authoritarian modernism, like the Aswan Dam or the Tapa Dam, these kinds of big projects. Um, And I would also say that, you know, these kinds of green or sustainable projects, they're deeply politicized now, right, because they carry this positive valence as the kind of the clean version and the future but often they express a very similar to kind of authoritarian politics or colonial politics. And we have a piece that's going to come out shortly after the launch by Mona Dejani, which is about Israeli wind farms being established in the occupied Jolan, which gets at exactly those dynamics. The Middle East and North Africa deserves special attention as one of the world's hardest hit regions in the world by climate change in the 21st century. So what explains the inadequate coverage? And like I can speak most closely to like academia, why it's not being addressed, especially in academia in the region. Brittany Cook. And I think, again, it's those common tropes that the region is usually read through. And like if we want to, even if we're talking about development studies, a lot of development work in the region is focused on urban spaces. I do work Mm. in Jordan and so much of the work is focused on Amman, for example, And in some ways, that's mirrored by where state interests are a lot of the time. But also, 
there needs to be more of a push of looking at rural livelihoods. You know, I do work on organic agriculture. And again, it's another kind of green development that has a great international swing. French government, you know, funds organic projects. American government funds organic projects. But really kind of picking that apart and looking at those impacts on social agricultural practices, encouraging irrigation in desert areas. And what does that mean for agriculture and the environment is really important, especially in this context of climate change. And in Jordan, increased water or increased lack of water accessibility. So I'm based in Qatar and it's it's like right now it's already one of the hottest places in the world and it's likely going to be uninhabitable due to climate change. It's the largest per capita emitter of carbon. In my research, I'm like circulating in a bunch of spaces where people are talking about the environment. They're talking sometimes about climate change. But the way in which this problem is being approached, it's so heavily controlled, controlled not just by um, governments, but by institutions like Texas A&M, who have an investment, at least here, have an investment in the continued extraction of fossil fuels. So here, when I'm interviewing students, especially students of this generation, not the first cohorts of Texas A&M, they're engineering students who have a really strong interest in the environment, yet there's no environmental engineering offered in the country. There's very little actual discussion of this within the country itself. And I think the main reason is it will disrupt everything, like the kind of agenda, not just of development in the Gulf, but also of the agenda in Texas of what capitalist development should look like. So in this context, there is some discussion of climate and these issues, but it feels like it's been bizarre kind of doing this research because it's so important to be discussing and talking about here, yet none of the institutions are talking about it. And younger people are, but there's actually no real space for them to be thinking about these issues. And then people that do come in aren't from Qatar, or they're not immigrants or nationals. So it's kind of dominated by Americans, Canadians, Europeans, when there are people that are talking about environmental issues in the Gulf. There are a lot of institutions kind of that that are invested in this particular model of development. And it's not just culture that is dependent on um, revenues from oil and gas. Texas A&M, for example, is, is very much involved in research about liquefied natural gas, which the U.S. has very recently started exporting and has been investing in infrastructure for the export of natural gas. Obviously, there are reasons why these kinds of questions are being sidelined here, but they're also related to Texas. So on the question of the lack of coverage, I think that um, along with the dynamics that uh, the other co-editors have talked about, I don't think that the Middle East and North Africa are exceptional in not having particularly strong coverage on environment and climate. That's something we see absolutely everywhere. Until last year, The Guardian uh, made a very conscious policy to start putting climate on the front page almost every day. That, there was no major news source that would, that would be doing that. And in the context of that general, I would say, structural disinterest or structural inattention, I think that there's been some news resources in the Middle East uh, that have done some, produced some really extraordinary writing on climate in particular. I read Madamasur and the Legal Agenda out of Lebanon regularly, and when faced with the fact that uh, the Nile Delta is going to be largely inundated by the Mediterranean in a matter of decades, and parts of Upper Egypt are going to be possibly uninhabitable, 
there's some writers in Egypt who are publishing in these fora who are, I think, engaging with these dynamics in a way that I find completely extraordinary. I want to say that if we think about the last, let's say, 100 years, I'll speak about Iraq, which is something I'm more familiar with. I mean, in 1917, right, right after the occupation of Baghdad, Mark Sykes of the famous Sykes-Picot Agreement gives this famous speech in Baghdad on the commercial future of the city where he talks about how this is a place that is going to be an area where all the merchants of the world will profit. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think about the ways in which it is possible and not possible for either a conversation or actual changes happening around climate change or happening around sustainable infrastructure in the Middle East. At the end of the day, the question we all have to consider is who is going to profit from these transitions? In the 1950s, what OAM was talking about in terms of large infrastructure projects, hydroelectric dams, road networks, railway networks, those processes of transformation led, led to mass amounts of land dispossession, led to environmental kind of catastrophes. And yet, people were profiting from that. Similarly today, even as we are people who are advocating for certain transformations, there are always going to be people who are paying the price or are the casualties of that transformation. And I think that that's what makes it hard to have that conversation. You cannot just talk about the environment without talking about the politics, right? You can't just talk about the environment without talking about the ways in which there are social hierarchies in place in many of these countries and how certain people bear the impacts of those crises more than others. That's, I think, one of the largest impediments to having that conversation. To conclude this conversation, I wanted to ask you and uh, can you give us a sense of what the page is going to look like on its first day, on Wednesday, April 22nd? The co-editors of the page have done a really remarkable job or coordinating a really large amount of, of content uh, for the launch. And we have a lot of really wonderful and exciting things planned over the next couple of months. Uh, so when we launch, we're going to have a few featured articles. These are new articles that are being produced as part of the launch. We're going to have Newton articles, which are the new text out now, talking about um, new books that are engaged with questions of the environment. We're going to have at least one or two episodes of Status, including one recorded by Homa most recently, that are going to be coming with a launch. And we are going to have an essential readings list that was prepared by three of the co-editors, uh, Brittany Cook, Camille Cole, and Gabby Kirk, which provides an interdisciplinary overview of scholarship on environment in the Middle East and North Africa. And we'll also have the Media Roundup, which is a series of links dated back to the beginning of 2020, covering a number of different news outlets that are fantastic resources for uh, recent events and analysis. To learn more about the Environment page, please visit us at jadmagazine.com. And for audio segments, you may visit statushour.com. For status, I am Malihe Razazan. Thank you for listening.